Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're starting our watch through of The Magician Season 3. <gasps> Yay! With Episode 1, The Tale of the Seven Keys. Britt, could you give us a recap of what happens in this episode? Yeah, so season three opens with Julia trying easy spells with Quentin and discussing why she has a spark of magic that she can't really harness. Quentin wants to see if they can contact any gods to learn more, and Josh takes them to a party hosted by Bacchus. He reveals that he hasn't heard from the old gods in a millennia, but also that the god Prometheus had once mentioned there is a back door to magic. We find out that Alice left Breakbills because she couldn't deal with studying dead magic and couldn't forgive Quentin. She consults a vampire to learn how to avoid an angry lamprey. We also learn that the trustees of Breakbills are planning to shut the school down unless they are given any proof that magic is still out there. Meanwhile, a very ill Penny still has to work for the library, fetching overdue books. He briefly meets up with Katie, who makes him go back to the library where time stands still, so he won't die as soon. Harriet gives Katie a book, saying she still may be able to save Penny's life. Back in Fillory, things aren't going great as Castle Whitespire is occupied by fairies, but most Fillorians don't even know they're there. Margot and Elliot figure out that the Fairy Queen is spying through the use of the eye she took from Margot. Elliot decides to track down the White Lady to wish away the fairies, but instead is graced by the presence of the Great Cock, <laughs> who gives Elliot a quest to restore magic. It all starts with a book in a library in New Jersey. Thankfully, cute little talking bunnies can easily travel between worlds so our protagonists and Fillory and Earth can communicate. Julia and Q find the tale of the seven keys, and the first step is to get a key on After Island outside Fillory's territory. So, starting off with a lot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and honestly, it's very delightful. I really love this episode. Yeah. So let's get into it. Uh, what are your magic moments from this episode? Well, there are some great lines. As always. Including Margot saying, I love when they do terrorism allegory with mostly white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about Battlestar Galactica, which I haven't actually seen, but you have, right? I have not, actually. Oh, it's, it's one of those okay. great series that I just never watched. Supposedly great. We don't know. Yeah, exactly. We haven't put our judgment on there yeah, yet. Yeah, like great with a capital G, like mm. one of those like core... Cult following. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But regardless, the quote is great. Yeah. <laughs> I also love that when they're like talking in code, Ellie and Margot to each other, most of it I actually don't understand. Mm. Like I sort of do from hearing other references, but most of the series I haven't actually seen. But... Totally. But that whole conversation is one of the best moments, I think, in the whole series. It's it's so good. good. (laughs) It is very much the kind of core character of this show Mm. where it's two characters with a great relationship in a difficult position who have a humorous, topical, referential conversation, Mm -hmm. like, you know, about magic and stuff. Like, it's just so so good so clear of yeah these are millennial magicians <laughs> yeah yeah and i love when they say pottered up mm. means magic mm-hmm. because it's like yes this is a reference anyone almost would know but the fairies you know totally yeah mm-hmm. and it's also cute how like they refer to quentin as their own harry like yeah. i think that that's a it's kind of a sweet term of endearment and way of thinking about that. It is, but I think it's an insult to Harry. I mean, of course. Of course. <laughs> at, at this point in the series, yes, at yes. least. <laughs> also, Bacchus saying to Quentin, you are a vibe killer, and historically, I do smite vibe killers. Yeah, he also describes himself as basically the god of not being Quentin. <laughs> The god of not, and then he describes a bunch of things and is like, you? (laughs) Absolutely. And Quentin trying so hard to be, you know, shots, let's do this. And he's just like 
so irritating to Bacchus is so funny. His determination is in of itself a vibe killer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Even when he's determined to try to do shots with Mm -hmm. him, like, it doesn't matter what he's doing. Bacchus is just like, no, no, dude, you're not invited to my party. (laughs) Speaking of which... Julia and Quentin's 10th grade quote-unquote dance routine. So horrible. What was even going on with that? (laughs) It wasn't even dance. It was was nothing. It was made a tiny bit more interesting because there were stairs, but I imagine the original time they did it, there was no stairs. Yeah, but that in a way makes it more genuine. Yeah, it feels more realistic. Like the Ross and... Monica, Monica dance mm-hmm. is too choreographed. Exactly. You know, like the the idea that the two of them would have done that is unbelievable. Whereas seeing these two do that actually is believable. <laughs> but all around great, and and again nice to see Julia and Quentin laughing over things mm-hmm. and, and sharing some good moments because. Up until now, a lot of the relationship that we've seen is. There's been a lot of tension, there's totally. been a lot of stress, there's been a lot of Quentin not living up to best friend <laughs> title. Uh, but yeah, it's nice to yeah, to see them. And and they have great chemistry together as friends. Mm-hmm. So And another thing that I like too in this episode is seeing, you know, it's just this little flashback of Alice leaving Break Bills. Mm-hmm. But I really like that they didn't just have her stay Mm. and it's like oh well she and Clinton had sex and now they're just together and things are okay which is something that happens in shows and stuff all the time but it's not very realistic for people you Mm -hmm. know uh when there was some there were some major issues uh not only because she was made human again and that process is really difficult for her uh, and losing all of that magic. And then she can only study it. She can't even do any magic yeah. now because of decisions that this other person made. <laughs> and that's all piled on top of the original no resolution with him cheating on her. Yeah, And so, yeah, I really like that it shows that no, things are not going to be the same. They can't be the same. Totally. While we were watching, I was wondering, you know, to what extent is she leaving also because she doesn't want to put anyone else in danger from the lamprey. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if that is also a motivation, I think that her expressing those motivations is sincere and, yeah, as you mentioned, important and really good to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you? What are your magic moments? I mean, I have to mention just the scene that we open up where we see Penny in a suit uh, now working for the library. Yeah, that's true. He has this, you know, major costume change, Mm -hmm. which I think highlights his changing status, you know, what what, uh, is changing for him, but also just still looks so good. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't really matter what he's wearing. It looks excellent on him. But I'm like, come on, you're going to make a dying person who's coughing up blood wear a tie? Come on now. (laughs) Although I do miss his scarves. Yes. Um, And then just in that first scene, when the person who's interrogating him or whatever asks, what's the library's real game? And Penny just goes, books? Books? (laughs) So good. So good. Uh, And I loved seeing when he goes back to the library, the cinematography showing how in disarray the library is. Mm -hmm. Not only is the set design really interesting and how they changed it to make it look more disordered, but the skewed camera angles. They're actually often used skewed camera angles, but Mm -hmm. like it communicates something different now. And they're probably using different techniques or different angles or something. But um, it really makes it look like it is out of control and desperate. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even for some quick scenes, we don't get a ton of Penny in the library in this episode, but those establishing elements, I think, communicate a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's kind of, I don't know, uh, it's interesting that Zelda would move to a different 
library branch. And I wonder if that's because of Penny, if she does feel some, I don't know, like wanting to help him as he's dying in a way. Because he's like, nobody cares that I'm dying, which is pretty true, Mm -hmm. um, particularly the library. But she's like, nobody wants you to die. And we've seen her before, you know, trying to help him and encouraging him with his traveling and stuff. So I wonder if she, like, moved branches just for him. Yeah, I could see that. Or, yeah, and the library wanting maybe her to keep a close eye on him after mm-hmm. he yeah. broke their rules and because he is valuable as a traveler, as they, they talk about, yeah. you know, that he brings important skill, you know, that's why the library wants him to stay alive. They why, keep working. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But why Zelda wants him to stay alive, I think is, uh, there's more interesting relationship dynamics going on there. Totally. And then one last thing is just that I, I noticed in this episode how Margot, when she is talking to almost everyone except for Elliot and sometimes the fairy queen Mm -hmm. in this episode, she was talking in a higher register than she usually does. Hmm. And it felt very much like a glimpse of her stress and her performance that she kind of always has on when she feels like she's always being watched Mm -hmm. that like she's putting on this voice, this kind of air that in of itself is a, performative aspect when she feels like her whole life is a performance because she can't get away from the queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought it was an interesting choice that that uh, I noticed. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't actually notice that, but that's great because I think in her acting, we do see the actual fear that she has in the face of the fairy queen's yeah. threats and for obviously good reason. They took her eye. Mm-hmm. What else might they do if she doesn't do what they say, you know? And and she's still going to be her and have a bit of attitude about it towards the fairy queen, but you can still tell that she is afraid, which is not a common emotion (laughs) from Margot. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, but let's head into our next segment on setting in society. What did you bring to discuss? Yeah, so I think that the the Board of Trustees, this is the first time we're hearing about them, that their investment stocks plummeted when magic ended. Mm -hmm. Before, we were talking about how most magicians, uh, magicians control most major banks, right? So to think about how manipulative these magicians are for wealth, yeah. And greed and power over the world. Yeah, it's just so frustrating because, you know, all of these non-magical humans or hedge witches are struggling mm-hmm. and they're just manipulating things. And now they're finally like, oh, well, that doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. When your whole life is built off of the manipulation of one resource mm-hmm. and that resource is gone... Yeah, and then at the same time, though, the threat of closing the school, because clearly they don't care about the study of magic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They care about their money. And so if their money is being used on this school and they're not getting the money that they used to, well, they're not going to spend it that way, right? And so, yeah, it's just interesting. And that the impetus is put on the dean to... Search for Mayakovsky's batteries or mm. any other potential for magic being out there is, yeah, just ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it's interesting, too, because it, it parallels tensions in the purpose of academic institutions in our society, mm-hmm. where how much are professors supposed to be teachers versus researchers? Yeah. And especially for those who might be doing research that, yeah, is funded through grants and, you know, other kinds of things that come with expectations and maybe stipulations. Uh, What does that mean for someone who, yeah, is also there as a teacher? Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously I think that that the funding of research is really important and something that, that, you know, needs to be done. But there is a interesting dichotomy that universities serve both function simultaneously and that there can be a tension between those, uh, particularly when you do have boards of trustees that 
are the ultimate ones making decisions about the direction of the institutions. Mm-hmm. Especially people who probably have never been a professor. You know, like they don't have Definitely. any experience in what it's like to teach as well as trying to manage research when you're not given the resources mm-hmm. uh, and uh, just way too much on your plate, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> I was also really interested in the kind of diversity they're showing in gods or magical creatures because we have Bacchus, mm-hmm. who is so different than the gods we've met previously. Obviously, we've met the horrific Reynard, mm-hmm. and we've met Persephone. And then you have Bacchus, who's on social media mm-hmm. to gain followers and worship, <laughs> who come to these parties that he throws, and his outfit. Oh my god. Oh my god. It's this white suit jacket over swim trunks, a top hat, and purple fluffy boots or maybe they were socks (laughs) under boots i don't even know and it's just like the most ridiculous horrible frat bros right who think they're cool and really aren't (laughs) but for some reason people like them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh yeah so i just i think it's interesting versus as he describes the old gods as imperious and distant dickwads who (laughs) he hasn't spoken to in a millennia. And then there's, as described, the up-with-humans god, (laughs) who is Prometheus, who loved humans but died. And he's like, oh, well, he lived a pretty tortured existence, so it was probably a relief for him to die, you know? And so it's just showing that gods are very diverse mm-hmm. in how they are, their personalities, how they operate, what they focus on or care about. Um, yeah, I, I, like, I think Bacchus actually would get along very well with Ember. They have very oh, a lot of similarities, totally. but he is not someone who requires full control and entertainment and things like that. He just wants the party to keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I just, I think that it is an interesting addition and um, hilarious that Josh has the in there. Yeah, totally. But also makes sense. Totally. But it's, it's interesting to see still, I feel like, with even Bacchus, who's interacting with humans so much, mm-hmm. he doesn't really care about them. Yeah. It's the, yay, party, let's have fun, but... If any human's going through anything, he's like, oh, you don't have magic? Oh, <laughs> man. You know, like, yeah. he didn't care. It's not going to do anything to change that, you know. Still it's... threatening to smite them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So, very interesting. But then we hear of this Prometheus who actually did care, mm-hmm. which is cool. And we'll find out a little bit more about him as we go along. Cool. And then I think we also see a similar thing with the kind of great questing creatures Mm. of Fillory. Here we meet the great cock of the Darkling Woods. We sure do. Have you ever beheld one? (laughs) (laughs) I've beheld one or two. (laughs) Oh my god. Him and Elliot together, just excellent. Delightful. Yeah. What's the point of hearing your petition if the aesthetics are shit? Exactly. It's just so great. But in comparison to the white lady, or I think yeah. he says the winter's dough, ugh, what do you want? That hurt. You know, <laughs> she's just like, I don't care. Let's get these wishes over with. And then mm-hmm. this great cock is all about the ceremony. Yeah. You know? yeah. Especially after he gets those compliments. Oh, yeah. Have you never given a compliment? <laughs> <laughs> That's all he wants. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'll I'll start. (laughs) Your long legs look so well in those breeches. (laughs) Such an excellent compliment to start with. And 
also very accurate for Elliot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And wonderful, you know, version of, like, a peacock beast, mm-hmm, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another thing, that it's, it's just literally one sentence for me, is I just want to find out more about High Queen Chen Li, the bookish. Right? Who are you? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> I want to hear. Were you better than the monarchs have been recently? <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she is the bookish. And... The bookish, yeah. Yeah. A title I'd love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, another thing that I was thinking about uh, that I is a criticism, which you mm-hmm. m- very well might have on your list, too, is Fen. Fen, Yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't know what they were thinking here. Like, I don't know if they're trying to communicate some amount of, like, postpartum psychosis Mm -hmm. where people who have recently given birth can have hallucinations or delusions and, you know, it can be, it can even be quite dangerous. If that's what they're communicating they're making it a joke, and obviously postpartum psychosis is not a joke in any way. It's a serious medical condition yeah. uh, that has to be treated. And, um, yeah, I just, I don't know what they're doing, and it's um, quite disappointing from them. It's so frustrating to see. Like, Fen, you know... If you don't some... remember what we're talking about, sorry, it's like Fen acting like this log is her baby, or... One of the bunnies, bunnies. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, you know, Fen in the f- second season, we had lots of discussions about her agency, and they had some setbacks there for sure, but all in all, she at least had some interesting elements of what her goals were, her determinations. And here, she literally has no narrative agency whatsoever. She doesn't push anything forward. She doesn't have anything that she says to anyone outside of this log and this rabbit. I actually wouldn't agree with that. I think in this episode, that's the majority. But the episode ends with her saying, I know what boat you need. Oh, that's true. So she, like, actually does know something that these, you know earth people do not Mm -hmm. um and she is providing information that they do need and that they'll use in the next episode but (laughs) the majority of her existence in this episode yeah is just supposedly for laughs but it's not funny exactly (laughs) yeah and it it makes them all worse characters because now Margot and elliot and everyone else are just watching her do this and themselves not doing anything other than kind of awkwardly laughing or looking at her like, is she okay? It's like, no, obviously Mm -hmm. not, you know? And sure, there's a lot going on, but even, you know, a quick scene between Elliot and Margot, one of them being like, we need to do something. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to add this to the to-do list because she's not well. You know, and the other just being like, yeah, I just don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, something like that. Or I've had a conversation with her and or whatever the situation is. But yes, something like, yes, they're dealing with a law. Yeah. But this is important if they're going to make this a thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's disappointing. But the last thing that I really want to talk about, I think you even might have more to say than I do, (laughs) but I'm thinking about conspiracy theories. Ooh. Because the man who Penny was getting the overdue library book from As you mentioned before, he's like, what's the library's real game? And this man is saying, it's all Mayakovsky's fault. Mm -hmm. He stored magic batteries and then he turned it off so that he could break his incorporate bond. And he's free and he can still use magic, but none of us can. And then he's saying, well, creatures are fine because Mm -hmm. of their DNA and they're coming for us. And so there's several conspiracies all wrapped up into this man yeah. uh, and his views of what's happening. And in the absence of communication from the library, communication from anyone who knows what happened mm-hmm. and why magic was turned off, people are going to 
create theories on what they think happened. I mean, totally. that's, that's just too many. You can't just be like, magic is gone. I don't know what happened and I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like everybody's going to care and be discussing with each other. Or in this case, this guy, he has a gun, you know, he is isolating himself, trying to protect himself. And it also clearly communicates some tension or prejudice with creatures. Mm -hmm. Uh, This assumption that they are coming for us now uh, and you have to protect yourself from them. Um, is also, yeah, an interesting element that does add more layers to the world. Totally. Yeah, I also was absolutely intrigued by the kind of suspicion and paranoia that we see in his character and that I think is meant to communicate to us that this is more and more the case in the world. You know, we also saw Mm -hmm. at the end of last season, Josh was asking about magical flare-ups around the world that people were had rumors about, you know, so you see all sorts of different kinds of information that is unconfirmed being spread. Some of it hopeful, but all of it about, yeah, magic being taken away and no one's sure how to access it again, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, very, very interesting and a really great world building element that, that we're getting in the post magic world. Totally. And, you know, you've taught whole lessons on conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. right? That people have believed uh, throughout you know, modern history. Yeah, yeah. It's something that my students really love. Uh, I'll actually be teaching it next week. Uh, They're looking forward to it. And I think it's a fascinating topic generally just because, you know, it's interesting. A lot of these theories are interesting. (laughs) But, you know, as a historian, I also think of it as really important in showing how society changes and how society is impacted by certain events. So conspiracy theories started being much more widely believed in the United States in the 1960s and 70s, especially in the 1970s after things like Watergate. Mm -hmm. And as some of the information that was found in that investigation and further investigations showed actual conspiracies that occurred through the American government, that makes people have more questions and uh, and your politicians lying about it right? exactly mm-hmm. where yeah of course that's going to impact people's perspectives but even before that you know the the assassination of jfk is you yeah. know one of the most important examples of this in american history and it's very much tied to what you were saying about not people not getting information because it i may have mentioned this on the podcast before but After JFK was assassinated, the Church Commission, which was set up to basically look into what happened, was being told by the FBI and the CIA, you can't release a very comprehensive report. You kind of just need a rubber stamp. The general idea is that Oswald acted alone. He shot JFK because he was a socialist, you know, these other kinds of things, because we don't... Because we're scared of socialism. (laughs) Right, yeah. Uh, But... They didn't want a really deep investigation because they knew that that investigation would come up with some of the conspiracies that JFK was involved with, Mm -hmm. like wanting to kill Castro Mm -hmm. and, you know, the things that the CIA was doing around the world and and all these other elements. And so for the sake of pride and, and nationalism and things like that, they wanted to keep those things secret. So the report that came out was so obviously (laughs) underwhelming, you know, not serious. And so people immediately started questioning it because, yeah, they weren't getting enough information. And especially for a big event, you know, one of the things that people who study conspiracy theories talk about is that oftentimes they come out because people see a huge event needing to have a huge explanation. Mm-hmm. The idea that the most powerful man in the world, the president of the United States, could be killed by one socialist with a gun. Mm-hmm. It's not a satisfying explanation when you can think about all these other things and in the context of the Cold War and, and all this other stuff that's happening. So, yeah, a conspiracy feels more satisfying often. And so, yeah, with a huge event like losing magic and with the lack of any information going out there as to mm-hmm. why that happened or who still has magic or anything, it totally makes sense that these kinds of conspiracies would be rampant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, 
I feel for all of the magicians out there because they don't understand mm -hmm. what happened. All of our characters that we're following know why magic is turned off. But like, if you literally have no idea and even if you have no idea and you saw it happen, you're like, who was that guy you know, mm -hmm. who just came through? Or if you didn't, you know, and I can imagine that there were rumors about that that would spread for those who did see it. But even also non-magicians out there, if these huge financial institutions are crumbling because magic is gone, yeah. what are the answers for that too, you know? And so, yeah, it's... I can imagine it would be so frustrating and people would have a lot of fear and frustration and information is being kept from them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what about you? What are your setting in society points? Yeah, that was definitely one of my big, oh, two okay. of my big ones, Good. one with Fen and the paranoia. Yeah. But I did have a couple other things that, that I found interesting. In particular, the world building that goes along with what does still have magic what is inherently magical mm. you know we see this talking a lot about magical creatures mm -hmm. uh so far and we even see these bunnies in some way are <laughs> magical creatures not only can they talk but they can teleport they can they can travel across worlds so cute yeah very very cute also such a clever and hilarious way of communicating a huge amount of information having to send like 40 bunnies so that funny. each have a little bit of information. Like, it's like telegrams. And they're talking all over each other. It's so funny. Amazing. Oh, my God. And all in that <laughs> tiny little corridor, which is the only place that fairies can't go. Like It's almost like a text when it like you're texting a long text to somebody who's not in the same mm -hmm. device type as yours. Like, if they're not Apple or they're Android or whatever. They would often come, like, out of order totally. and you'd be like, one of five, and, yeah, like, you're yeah. piecing it together. Once they got them to all quiet down, they had to do that, mm -hmm. right? It's like, okay, we get this snippet, write that down, and then where do these go? Yeah, so yeah, great. So good. But we also see at the beginning of the episode, uh, Quentin using the magic glass to watch Julia's attempts at magic. And that made me think like, okay, so are, is it that these pieces of glass, these, these minerals or whatever they are, have their own inherent magical qualities mm. that make it so that you can see kinds of magic through them? You know, mm -hmm. we've seen people use them a, a few times. We don't get a actual explanation of what they're supposed to be showing. We just, you know, this is cool magical lens. But yeah, it's another example of something in the world that still maintains some magical element. Mm-hmm. Even or though potentially is gone. doesn't, but they're looking to see if something will That's happen if she does true. create magic. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, I, I find that very interesting is, you know, what is still working? Um and, and Penny being the most magical creature of all. Yes, right. <laughs> still being able to, to travel. But just him. Mm hmm And then we see in Alice's story how that also gives these magical creatures some new kinds of power. Mm -hmm. You know, they may not be coming for people the way that the, the person at the beginning of the episode thinks, but they are a place that you can turn to and you have to give them something. Alice can't just threaten him the way that they may have threatened magical creatures in past seasons. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But instead, yeah, lets him feed on her uh, in exchange for that information. So they have these, you know changing power relationships, which I think are interesting. And I don't remember if the show goes this way, but I can imagine it also having some people be like, well, if magical creatures still have magic, how can we get their magic, you mm -hmm. know, and creating new kinds of tensions that aren't just about, you know, these, yeah, often being called bottom feeders in the past, mm -hmm. but now having, yeah, new kinds of power and access to a resource that is in limited supply and um, what that brings about. I just think it, it's very interesting. Uh, and again, it's fascinating to see how the end of magic at the end of season two means that we almost have a whole new form of world building mm. uh, because we are seeing not only new elements of the world, but new tensions that have come up within the world. Yeah. Yeah. But let's head into our next segment on themes and schemes. What themes did you want to talk about? 
So I think the major one that I'm thinking about this episode is kind of about quests and mm. heroes. Because we have the great cock yep. sending Elliot on what he calls an epic quest. And Elliot, he doesn't want the quest. He's first just like, but my people need help. Yeah. How long does this quest take? Which About a season. Ab- about a season. <laughs> but he does not jump at being given a, like he is given a quest yeah. in a way that Quentin hasn't been mm-hmm. really Quentin keeps taking quests <laughs> but Elliot is given it and doesn't want it because he wants to stay and help his people mm-hmm. the people that he feels responsible for yeah. because he has this role of power over them then once the Greycock's like well in order to help your people, you must travel to a land where you are no king, no magician, just a vulnerable man. And Elliot just says, honestly, that sounds like something I might really fuck up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, just great because that's his response. His response mm-hmm. is, no, I have a responsibility to people and... Then when you're like, okay, this will actually help them, he's like, but am I really the right person for this? Because this sounds like something I'm going to fail at. Yeah. You know? And he's realistic with himself. Uh, Maybe maybe a tad mm, Mm self-deprecating because he has already done a lot uh, for Fillory and accomplished so much. But I could also see him being down on himself for being part of the assassination of Ember leading to the end of magic mm-hmm. and, and things like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I totally see him weighing that responsibility and his own failures. And yeah, he, he, even though he's literally the high King, he's the only one who now is getting a quest in the past was given the high King mm-hmm. title chosen as such. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see himself as, special the way Quentin does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then when he tells the council that, okay, well, I'm going to go on this quest to find this key, and these are outside the official territories of Fillory. And so they're like, you are you are indeed a brave king. And he just says, I am indeed a guy with not much choice, but thanks for rounding up. Mm. And so, yeah, I just, I think... His attitude shows a lot more of what I think we like to think of as heroes mm-hmm. uh, in our modern sensibilities. Uh, even even when you look at something like Lord of the Rings, when they adapted to movies in the 2000s, they changed it. Mm-hmm. For Aragorn not wanting to be king, yeah. right? He took up that role begrudgingly. But in the books, it wasn't that. Aragorn always knew, yeah, I'm going to be king. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to help with these other things because they're important. But it wasn't with the same hesitance. And I think at least American culture <laughs> really likes that. <laughs> and and I'm a sucker for it too. It's just like, <laughs> no, don't want the power. I mean, sometimes it can be fun to have a character that like wants it like a really good villain, mm-hmm. you know? But for our protagonists, we want them to not be greedy with power, to not think that they're the most special person in the world, yeah. but to do what's right, not because they gain something from it, but because... It's right, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think here that's very much what Elliot is doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's the leadership thrust upon you kind of idea, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and it makes him such a compelling character, particularly again in contrast with someone like Margot, who also does think like, oh no. I'm in this position and, and I'm not going to take anything that is a challenge to my authority. You know, I am the high queen. I should be treated as such. <laughs> and Elliot is more just like, yeah, I've, I've kind of been 
pushed into this position and I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So yeah, these different kind of perspectives of of leadership and of uh, responsibility and being special, I guess, is is interesting. Well, and I think that a thing that I like about it here is that it feels a little less like a trope because Elliot has so many layers to him. Totally. Because Elliot has really screwed stuff up in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like the acid carrot moment (laughs) and other moments. And he's had a lot of hardship and he's had a lot of people in Fillory, even when he's preventing a war or, or different things, getting them out of a famine, like people are still not happy with him. And so I think there's a lot more context to it rather than just like, no, I don't want the role. You know, he Mm -hmm. feels like it feels genuine. It feels like he actually does doubt himself and for good reason. Uh, And yet he will step into this if that's what's required of him. Totally. Yeah. By this point in the series, we have experienced so much with each of these characters that, their reactions and their performances are all so much more weighted, you know, because obviously Elliot was a full person at the beginning of the series, Mm -hmm. but we didn't experience those past experiences with him. We were learning about them, but Mm -hmm. now we not only have the things that we've learned about him, but also the things that we've experienced with him, you know, behind everything that he does. And it's, it's one of the reasons why the show keeps getting better in this way where where because these characters aren't stagnant they change and those changes impact their performances impact their decisions um later on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and i think that quentin is starting to sl- slowly <laughs> show a little bit of that too because when he's talking with julia you know, he says that you showed me that there's a fight to fight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that could be very much, oh, no, he has another quest, right? But then he says, now I am the official sidekick to whatever it turns out you are. And that feels a little bit different than the moment that he gave Ember's bestowal mm-hmm. to Alice. There it was like, I have the choice to make. I was chosen, but I'm going to choose you. You know, it still felt very self-important. But here, he's saying, I'm the official sidekick to you. Like, you are yeah. the one with magic. And we are going to try to figure it out. Yeah, I think that that is showing a little bit of growth for him. That... Uh, I'm curious as we continue how that'll pan out. Totally. Agreed. But then again, at the end of the episode, he's so excited to be on this quest. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, he's not going to change his whole personality, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, I think. That but he says moment. like, Jules, this is our quest, mm-hmm. right? It's not my quest. Totally. So he very much recognizes that she is the important person here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, uh, what about you? I also had a kind of small theme of how Quentin and Julia, to get into the Bacchanalia, to get into Box's party, have to become more fun, they say, <laughs> right? They're too, they're too down and depressed and, and mm-hmm. all these other kinds of things. And so they have to kind of bring the fun in. And I just found that a, a really interesting line that kind of also mirrors what's going on in the show Mm. because the show is in a dark place you know (laughs) the show has them it's called the magicians and they don't have magic you know (laughs) like they are understandably dealing with all these crises all these issues that are happening and you know not to say the show hasn't been dark before but like it makes sense why most of these characters would be pretty unhappy mm-hmm. you know penny's mm-hmm. dying yeah. uh, <laughs> katie has to w- watch that happen in glimpses mm-hmm. yeah yes any time that he spends with her he kills him you know yeah. faster like it it it's difficult fillery's in turmoil alice is being hunted down exactly. by a magical creature <laughs> with homicidal intentions yeah and 
turning to other homicidal magical creatures to yeah. yeah so there's all sorts of I mean I don't know if if the Vamp- I mean th- was... that vampire wasn't yeah he was just like okay I'll do this deal <laughs> <laughs> um so the show yeah the show also needs to make sure that it's not just the hard heavy stories it also has to bring this fun in mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh and it does yeah and it does and, and i think their their song and dance again is is like a really fun version of that because we're very much laughing at them uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the show also as we clearly say in our, our magical moments like is still hilarious is still ridiculous at times yeah. it does bring a lot of levity even as we're dealing with these really dark difficult issues mm-hmm. so yeah i i think that that might be that line kind of triggered that for me and is something that i'll probably keep an eye on how they try to balance those aspects as mm-hmm. they go forward you know I've, I've definitely watched a lot of shows that have kind of dark periods that i think don't balance them out very well i think of like season four of angel where mm-hmm. it's just like it's such i don't remember what happens in it because that's, I've only seen it once, but that's the one with the, the the goddess and the pregnancy. Oh yeah, that's that's what I was assuming. Assuming, yeah, yeah, that just, was real bad. Yeah, and even though there's some standout, amazing episodes in that season, as a whole, that, that I never like want to go back and rewatch me, it. But yeah, so. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but this show I think is already doing a much better job, <laughs> and uh, I assume will continue to do so. But why don't we head into our next segment from another point of view? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about Julia. Mm. Because what we now know of Julia is that she is a knowledge student. And so I think anyone would be frustrated with this situation where it's like, oh, I figured I can do this tiny bit of magic. And then, oh, I can do this other spell, but like... As she says, there's no pattern. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's particularly frustrating for her because she wants to puzzle everything out. Yeah. She wants to figure it out. She wants to grow and change and tweak magic to make it better, to make it different, to understand the theory behind it. And she can't even understand why she can only do these random unimportant spells Mm -hmm. right i mean her cool stars smoke one is really cool but she's like but what you know what does that do that doesn't do that doesn't help anyone it doesn't help me like i can't do any other bigger better magic so it's just a frustrating place to be in you know Mm -hmm. and i really feel for her because i with my own disabilities, with chronic pain and fatigue, it's like I have a lot of passion for things. I have a lot of interests. I have, um, uh, at the risk of sounding arrogant, like, you know, I'm a pretty intelligent person. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things that I wanted to do uh, when I was in university and, and coming out of that, but increasingly I've, I've not been able to do that and I had to let go of those dreams and so I feel for her that it's like she has all of this interest and potential and drive and she can't do any of it she just has to sit there with the little that she has and then when it comes to her conversation with Josh and seeing him so down even though maybe, as Quentin pointed out, it could be risky to show people because who knows what they would do to you if you're the only person with magic. But she feels for Josh's hopelessness in the situation. As she says, like, how can I be so precious with something so small? Mm-hmm. And she still thinks of it as small, but Quentin sees it as the biggest thing because it's the only evidence that anyone has seen that any magicians can still do magic and so yeah i get why she feels that it's small (laughs) even when it's not uh even when it is important and it can help people even if it's not the way that she'd want to help people and 
yeah, I just, I, I feel for her and all of that in the midst of, could this be at all in a way connected to Reynard, mm-hmm. um, which would just be horrifying and her wanting to figure out, well, why do I have this? Can I grow it? But also with Quentin being like, well, let's try meeting more gods. And she's like, I don't want anything to happen to anyone else that happened to me, you know? And yeah, just her being in this very difficult place. And and we still see that she has this PTSD flashback while she's at the party. And she has so much going on, yet she's still trying to help other people when she can and when she sees people need it and yeah i i think i relate to that in some ways absolutely yeah and it's very interesting you know in contrast to her last season when she was dealing with not having her shade and and Mm -hmm. so much more in the trauma of everything that was happening to her when she did have her shade and you know we discussed this at the end of last season how she seemed so much more healthy than the other characters. She had moved on. She had found other things to motivate her in her life. And I think that she continues to have a a really positive and, and healthy outlook here, which is refreshing to see for the character. You know, really, really nice to see her being in that. But also, yeah, itself a kind of contrast with the world around her and her just wanting to do what she can reminds me of her with the free traders of wanting to do good with magic mm-hmm. and she doesn't have much anymore but she still wants to, to use it for whatever she can yeah I, I, again i think that we've seen so much growth with julia we've seen how she has you know all the things that she's endured all the things that she's done her character now is informed by all of that and is not only impressive but also just fascinating and compelling mm-hmm. yeah but what about you Whose perspective were you thinking about? I had two kind of short ones, two characters who we don't get a ton of in this episode, but mm. both I think were, were interesting. One being Penny, uh, you know, it was great to see oh. what we saw of Penny, but uh, he's not really connected with the other characters too much outside of Katie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so what we see is we see him call himself not quite human mm-hmm. uh, when he travels and teleports out of the the bonds that he was held in. Um, and the way he does it is so great. Yeah, you'd never even know if one of them was right there. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Such a such a <laughs> little punk. It's great. I, uh, <laughs> even in a suit. So ominous, but like you know, he's not gonna do anything exactly. bad. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so great. Very good. <laughs> and he's acting that way even when he is dying. Anytime he's not in that one library branch. Mm-hmm. Uh, dying, yeah, from, from super cancer or cancer plus or whatever it's called. Yeah. But like he, even when he's in that library, he's not actively dying, but he still has all of the symptoms of dying. He's still suffering. Yeah. And so he has so much awful things going on, but he also, yeah, still making jokes. Um, and he's still willing to sacrifice more of his limited time left so that he can spend it with Katie, which mm-hmm. she doesn't want. She wants him to remain alive, even if it's not with her, for as long as he can. Mm-hmm. And I I can understand that. I've made some bad decisions when I've been in love and just wanted to spend time <laughs> with the person. Nudge, nudge, nudge. <laughs> what bad decisions? Just not getting enough sleep. Yeah, exactly. Texting. All night, yeah. And, <laughs> and so... Yeah, I just, uh, I find his clear love of Katie and the the happiness that he has just to be around her makes the tragedy of him when he's in the library even more obvious. Mm. Because, yeah, there he's saying no one cares about me if I live or die. You know, sure, you don't want to lose a traveler. Like, he's cynical about everyone who's around him, about what he's doing for the library. He 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 doesn't have that same positivity that he had when he was with Katie, that same happiness that he had just being around her. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just, it makes, you know, while it's so great that we get more Penny, like he's not dead. So we still have him in the show mm-hmm. even after he got this, you know, 
terminal disease or repercussion for his actions, which I think the show, again, does well, as we talked about a lot last season. It's also, yeah, just so tragic to see his slow death and his his death on pause and how he is spending his time and how he wants to spend his time and how little time he has and, and how that itself becomes an important resource that becomes rationed. And, and it's just all penny. <laughs> I know, right? And at least for me, it's like when you feel absolutely awful, you just want to be able to rest with people that you love to help take your mind off things and mm-hmm. distract you from the suffering. But... Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think he was hoping to rest with Katie, if, well, if you sure, know what I mean. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, but was, yes. he was coughing up blood. That's he true. wouldn't no, be able to do anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, he is not allowed to do that. Yeah. He has to be in this frantic library and stuck with people he doesn't know or trust, really, Mm -hmm. and working. Being exploited for his labor. Oh, Penny. Penny. But the other character I want to talk about was Josh. Because Mm -hmm. Josh has this really great conversation where they're both very high but he's talking with julia about how much he just misses magic and it's one of the first times we've really gotten a lot of serious vulnerability from josh where he's not just talking about even his interests but he he's really talking about what he's lost Mm -hmm. and how that makes him feel and and yeah he's you know saying things that you'd have to be pretty vulnerable to be able to share that with someone, right? That magic made him feel special. Magic made him feel like not only he belonged somewhere, like he belonged with other magicians, but he belonged everywhere because he could take magic and do anything and go anywhere. That made him feel like he had a purpose, uh, that he was good at something and something that was good. Mm-hmm. You know, he talks about he wasn't just a nobody, but he was someone. He was someone who was good at doing this thing that he loved. And yeah, that gave him a sense of identity. That gave him a sense of belonging. And so losing magic was just so hard for him. And now he has to rethink his identity and rethink how to find belongingness. And while we see him still studying magic, we see him willing to go out and party, you know, willing to help out his friends... Um, here we see, I think, the despair of that overcoming him when he's in this vulnerable state, when he is high. And when Julia sees that, she shows him the magic and we see the hope on his face. We see in his performance the way that just knowing that changes things and you know, it doesn't give him access to magic, doesn't give him that belonging back, but it gives him hope and it gives him, yeah, a light in that despair that he didn't have before, mm. which I, I just, uh, yeah, I can, I can appreciate. I certainly have my own struggles with uh, <laughs> wanting to feel special and, mm. um, yeah, wanting to feel like I'm good at something or, yeah, that I'm not just a nobody, you know, uh, feeling like. I need to fulfill my promise and all these other kinds of things that a number of characters have have dealt with in this show. But here was the first time that I really like connected with Josh on a deep level and saw in him a kind of emotional performance and a a great like um, just something that really resonated with me and uh, and was really powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about you during that scene, too. Just, like, you growing up, you know, you were told you were special. You Were were you in, like, quote-unquote gifted programs? I was. I was yeah. in Gate. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> gifted and talented education. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was thinking about you a bit in, in that scene. And then learning that I'm actually a nobody. <laughs> No, you're just Having actually to, just a person. to grieve my specialness, <laughs> just like Josh is. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, well, why don't we head into our last segment when we evaluate the title of the episode. So what do you think about the tale of the seven keys? I love it. I mean, I think it's a great way to set up this season. And and as you were talking about before, like, uh, while everything is so bad, all of mm-hmm. the characters are struggling, it gives that hope of like, oh, fun, you know, because it's, it's the tale, you know? It's uh, an epic quest, which the audience will get excited about. Yeah, I, I wish it was the quest for the seven keys instead mm-hmm. of the tale, because we don't actually learn anything about the seven keys you know we don't yeah i think we do at the very beginning of the next episode i'm not sure but i like it because it's a book title totally you know? yeah i just for me when i hear that i think i'm gonna get lore and there really wasn't that lore in this episode mm. um but yeah otherwise i think that it's it's a, it's a great title yeah all right well that will wrap up this week's discussion so what's happening next time on the magicians So we're going to be on episode two, Heroes and Morons. You couldn't even get through that. (laughs) No. I'm not sure about the, like, history and context of the word morons. I'll have to look that up to see if that's uh, very problematic. Yes. Uh, But, yes, the, the quest begins. Looking forward to it. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines find links to our website our social media and our patreon in the episode description we want to thank kimberly kuniko at lacelet for designing our logo thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week until then geek Geek out. out